0: Welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts an Evergreen Podcasts Network. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. Um, we are bringing this plane in for a landing, uh, this week, this, uh, plane that started for us six years ago, six episodes ago, boy, (laughs) oh boy. Um, and for Charles Manson, started all those years ago when his, um, stepdad made him wear a dress to school, probably? Didn't help. Um, so, Caroline, uh, last week we heard about the, um, brutal murders of, uh, Sharon Tate and... Uh, Well, the other inhabitants of that, the other less famous, unfortunately, inhabitants of that house, uh, J.C. Bring. Wojciech Frykowski,
1: Abigail Folger, and Steve Parent.
0: um, Who were all killed on that uh, horrible night in August of, uh, we are August, right, of 1969 Mm -hmm. on Cielo Drive. This week, there is more murder and mayhem to come, but um, spoiler alert, a somewhat happy ending as we finally get to uh, put Mr. Manson behind bars. Uh, but where are we starting this week, Carrie?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, last week, we have just a fucking awful story. Uh, what the Manson family did to those people was just atrocious and... Um, You know, it's important to keep that at the top of mind, even despite understanding that these people were... Heavily brainwashed and very deep into the Manson cult at that point. I mean, they had plenty of chances to not do what they did that night on Cielo Drive.
0: Well, uh, th- I, uh,
1: So, you know, they chose not to take those chances.
0: Well, and one of the girls did, right? One of the girls went out and, and hid by the car after yes. a certain point?
1: Yes. So, with that in mind, we'll keep making our way through this weekend from hell, beginning with the immediate aftermath of what would become known as the Tate Murders. So the horror for the public started early the next morning. Uh, Winifred Chapman, the housekeeper at 10,050 Cielo Drive, showed up for work promptly at 8 a.m. Upon reaching the gate at the bottom of the home's driveway, Chapman noticed that a wire had been downed, not realizing that it had actually been cut the night before by Tex Watson to prevent anyone at the house making calls for help to the authorities. So
0: he climbed the telephone pole and snipped it down from there?
1: Yeah. Despite lacking this information, the fact that the wire was down and nothing had been done did worry her. She pressed the button on the gate to open it and soon noticed an unfamiliar car parked at an odd angle in the driveway. She ignored this because overnight guests were common at the house uh, and went to the back of the house where there was a service entrance. She pulled out a hidden spare key and entered. She walked directly into the kitchen, seeing nothing out of the ordinary on the way, and picked up the phone. And that's where she learned that the phone was dead. So she figured, well, I should tell the residents here about this problem. Uh, it's probably not surprising that they weren't awake at this point. It's eight a.m. You know, it was a I think it was a Saturday night or a Friday night. Um, so you know. They were up late. She'd probably expect them to be awake.
0: She didn't go to the guest house and talk to the unwitting groundskeeper first?
1: Not yet. But she did walk into the dining room toward the living room. Uh, Her path was blocked by two large steamer trunks, which hadn't been there the previous afternoon, which stopped her physically. But what stopped her mentally was the visible blood on the trunks. Um, It was obviously disturbing. She could tell it was blood. And when she looked past them, she saw blood everywhere Mm -hmm. on the floor next to the trunks on two towels in the entryway she couldn't see the entire living room from her vantage point which is just as well um, considering that sharon and jay's bodies were in there but she could see red splashes of what looked like even more blood all over the visible area of the room looking out the window she saw more blood pooled on the flagstone porch And that's when she saw the first body, which we now know was Abigail Folger, covered in blood, laying on the front lawn. Chapman ran screaming from Cielo Drive, spotting yet another body sitting in the white car in the driveway that she hadn't seen before. She had just been looking at the exterior. She ran from- Wait, is that
0: where they stuck Steve?
1: Steve never left the car. He had been trying to leave and he had been shot through the window. She ran from house to house, uh, screaming, murder, death, bodies, blood. She was hysterical for obvious reasons. Finally, someone answered. I mean, I think initially people were a little nervous about someone just screaming murder.
0: Yeah, that's why you should yell uh, fire, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) They did what they could for the hysterical woman, and they called the police. Several officers arrived bit by bit to the scene, fully taking in the horror of the entire display, the five bodies strewn across the property, the blood strewn everywhere, and the words written in blood on the walls, including political piggy.
0: Yeah. And what was the pig-related phrase on uh, on the previous wall?
1: Just pig, yeah. I think. Upon approaching the guest cottage at the back of the residence, the officers heard a dog bark from inside, as well as the voice of a man whispering, shh, be quiet. Oh, Jesus. One of the policemen kicked in the door, revealing a hiding William Gerritsen within. And William Gerritsen, you'll remember, was the caretaker that Rudy Altabelli, the actual owner of the house, had kind of installed there.
0: This is... Quite suspicious behavior. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> it did not look good for him. Uh, Shut down. Stop it. Yeah. He immediately became the first suspect in the slaughter. Poe, stop it. Stop it. They led William Gerritsen outside at gunpoint to try and identify the victims. It's telling that Abigail Folger's body was so maimed that Gerritsen initially identified her as being Winifred Chapman, who was a black woman. Abigail was white.
0: Wow. Uh, so they were angry by the time they killed her because she was running from them, right?
1: Yes. She was brutally, brutally mutilated. He identified the rest, aside from Stephen Parent, despite having met with him the night before. He was possibly in shock and didn't really understand what he was seeing. And soon after that, William Gerritsen was read his rights and arrested for murder. After this first group left the house, four detectives were dispatched to investigate the scene and found a few initial pieces of evidence. There was three pieces of a broken gun grip, which we know was broken when Tex was beating Wojciech in the head with his gun. Mm Um, Susan Atkins's lost buck knife was found in some cushions, a pair of eyeglasses, which Charlie had planted to kind of throw detectives off the scent.
0: Oh, that's right. With his like return to the scene of the crime on the same night.
1: There was a scattering of fingerprints and many, many blood samples. At noon, William Tennant, Roman Polanski's agent, And a family friend arrived at Cielo and identified all of the bodies sans the one in the parked car, which he had never seen before. Mm -hmm. And uh, he went to go call Roman and tell him the bad news in Europe.
0: Gerritsen didn't identify that guy?
1: He was in shock. I think he just didn't understand what was going on.
0: I think he's also in like full cover my ass mode in a way that is detrimental to his
1: I t- yeah, we'll we'll talk about it a little later, but I think part of it is that he's definitely in shock, and part of it is that he probably heard slash saw some shit go down the night before and was hiding, um, and, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, don't go out there. Right. But-, uh, but, you know, people would might judge that, like, why didn't you try to help? Why didn't you do anything? He might have tried to call the police, but his phone line was cut, too, so... Yeah, it just, it didn't look good for him on either side. The families of the first four victims were notified and the first reports hit the media as five slain in Bel Air. The story soon became a sensation, especially after the identities of the four victims was leaked.
0: On well, Sharon in particular.
1: Yes, of course. And I'm going to crib the idea of using this quote from the podcast, You Must Remember Manson, because it's just so perfectly evocative of the day. Uh, writer Joan Didion wrote of what it was like to hear the news as a member of the Hollywood elite on the day of August 9th, 1969, in her essay, The White Album. Quote, I was sitting in the shallow end of my sister-in-law's swimming pool in Beverly Hills when she received a phone call from a friend who had just learned about the murders at Sharon Tate Polanski's house on Cielo Drive. The phone rang many times during the next hour. These early reports were garbled and contradictory, One caller would say hoods. The other would say chains. There were 20 dead. No, 12, 10, 18. Black masses were imagined and bad trips blamed. I remember all of the day's misinformation very clearly. And I also remember this, and I wish I did not. I remember that no one was surprised. Oof. So, Mm. Charlie Manson, apparently just pooped from the night before, slept in that day.
0: Well, he was out late.
1: (laughs) Yes. And so he missed the first news bulletins on the murder, but many of the other family members caught them live. Susan was gleeful at being part of such a big story. Tex was prideful and boastful about the event. Susan, you were hiding by the car. No, that was Linda. Susan, she did enough. However, none of the newscasts mentioned the possible involvement of the Black Panthers, nor any connection to the Gary Hinman murder, which was supposedly the entire point in the first place. No. No,
0: In in fact, it seems like everyone thought like drugs and hippies, which is yes, which is is not
1: what you the direction you want to point them. No, because that's closer to the truth. Right. So no race war had been kicked off, and this all displeased Charlie. But he allowed the family to celebrate that night. After the others went to bed, Charlie gathered those present for the Cielo murders: Tex, Susan, Patricia, and Linda, as well as two other family members, Clem and Leslie. Last night was handled badly, he told the group. We need to go back out again tonight and do it right this time. They all put on dark clothes as Charlie waited for them by the car. And over 40 years later, Pat Krenwinkel would recall, quote, the first night we didn't know. The second night we did.
0: Charlie just keeps busting out at the casino and keeps buying back in like, okay, this mm-hmm. these murders are going to do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Two people who didn't know the fate that was about to befall them were married couple Rosemary and Lino LaBianca. Lino ran a chain of grocery stores and Rosemary co-owned a boutique. The family was comfortably upper middle class, very suburban. On the afternoon of August 9th, Rosemary and Lino were returning from a trip to Lake Isabella just north of Los Angeles, originally driving out to drop off a speedboat to be used by Frank Struthers, Rosemary's teenage son from a previous marriage. Originally, they were going to bring Frank and the boat back on Saturday, but Frank had convinced them to just let him stay one more night. My friends will take me home. And they were cool with it. Um, So they returned on Saturday with the boat hitched to their Thunderbird and Rosemary's adult daughter, Suzanne, in tow. They missed the first frenzied reports on the Cielo Drive murders that morning due to their travels. But since traffic had been quite slow, they had picked up the known details of the crime on the car radio over the span of their drive. They dropped Suzanne off at her nearby apartment around 1 a.m. that Sunday morning. And on the way home, they dropped... They stopped at an all-night newsstand near their Los Los Feliz. It's Los Feliz.
0: I think it's Los Feliz. Yeah, yeah. I, li- I listen to podcasts <laughs> uh,
1: near their Los Feliz home to buy a newspaper. Lino liked to gamble, and he wanted the most current information on the ponies. Lino was a regular customer at the stand, and he and owner John Falcianos chatted a bit during the stop, discussing the big news of the day, the Tate murders. Falcianos gave Lino the Los Angeles Times special short edition all about the crime and didn't charge him because Lino was such a good customer. When questioned later by police, Falcianos would say he was certain the La Biancas left the stand at just before 2 a.m. because right afterward was when all the bars closed and everyone flooded the stand as the bars let out wanting to get more information about the murders. Meanwhile, the seven-person Manson family crew left Spahn Ranch crammed into one single car with an intention to split into smaller three-person groups and commit two more murders that night. Tex was given a new handgun as well as a military bayonet, bayonet? Yeah. I always want to say bayonet. Uh, He was given a bayonet that had been acquired from an army surplus store.
0: So that's not attached to a gun, obviously. He's just going to stab with it.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. They had all gotten high on weed sometime that day, you know, throughout the day. And Susan and Tex had also secretly dipped back into their stash of meth. So we got that working for us here.
0: Great. So they're tweaking, they're stoned, and uh, they're getting out there with with a bayonet. Yeah.
1: Initially, Charlie made a show of considering several different victims for the next murder, but eventually his directions became quite specific when given to Linda, who was driving. Remember, she had the only... Legal license, which again, you're committing murder. That, that, I mean, it's very small potatoes.
0: This one's very important, though, to to, to observe. <laughs> yeah, even if you get pulled over, sure, the the license is legit, but there's a, a, a again, there's a, Charlie Manson in your car, and not to mention the tweaker with the, <laughs> waving the bayonet around.
1: Right. Charlie told Linda to drive to the Los Feliz uh, area of LA, and eventually directed her to Waverly Drive. Tex, Susan, and Pat knew exactly where they were. Waverly Drive was where their friend Harold True's house had been before he had moved away some months earlier. It's
0: also where those Disney wizards live. That's
1: Waverly Place. Oh,
0: I'm sorry. That's a few drives over.
1: (laughs) Uh, So the family had partied here several times. To Charlie, there was no difference between this middle class suburbia and the rich enclaves of Hollywood. They were all just wealthy jerks to him. Pigs. Piggies. Yes. Charlie parked uh, in front of the house that Harold True had lived in. Then he, along with Tex, who was armed with a gun and bayonet, entered the house next door through the back door, which was still unlocked.
0: It's weird that he always goes to houses he knows.
1: It's weird. I mean, this not- is the neighbor, but yes.
0: But, but, uh, but it's like, so, okay, but you've never been inside this neighbor's house, probably. Yes. Why are you going here?
1: I have no idea what possessed him to choose this area at all.
0: Is it just like Charlie, does Charlie think he sees signs and sigils or does he just pretend to see signs he and sigils? He thinks he sees
1: rich people. To, to Charlie, everyone middle class and up is rich.
0: Yeah, but surely, I mean, there are richer neighborhoods, there's richer right. neighborhoods right. nearby.
1: I, I genuinely have no idea what his strategy was here, if any.
0: so much of the stuff seems planned, again, not well, but planned. And then it's like, what, what the
1: fuck is this? Yeah. So Charlie and Tex enter through the back door. And they found Lino LaBianca asleep on the couch. The newspaper he had just purchased draped over his face. He was sleeping. Charlie nudged Lino awake with his gun and startled. Lino asked, who are you? What do you want?
0: I'm the devil. "I'm Oh, wait, <laughs> shit. That's Texas line.
1: <laughs> well, initially, Charlie spoke quietly and soothingly. No one was going to hurt anyone here. Just relax. This is just a robbery. And holding him at gunpoint, Charlie ordered Lino to roll onto his stomach on the couch, then had Tex tie his hands behind his back with a leather strap he had brought with him. Charlie then went into the bedroom and returned with Rosemary La Bianca, who had thrown a dress over her nightgown after being encountered by this strange intruder. She was still self-conscious and, and wanted to, um, I don't know, She she didn't want to be seen in her nightgown even by this robber. Yeah, modesty. Yeah. She was terrified, but cooperative. Charlie asked the couple if they had any money. Lino responded that Rosemary's wallet was in their bedroom, and Tex went to fetch it. Once Charlie had the wallet, he went to retrieve Pat Krenwinkel and Leslie Van Houten from the car. Once inside, he instructed them to move Rosemary back to the bedroom, then snapped to Tex, "'Make sure everybody does something.' Then Charlie left, taking Linda, Clem, Susan, and the car with him." It was time for Tex and this particular murder squad to handle the crime themselves. And again, like last week, a warning to those listening that the next part of the story is truly horrific. And
0: Charlie, again, just dipping everyone else's hands a little bit in blood. So it's like, everyone around me has done more murder than me. So you can't take me to jail.
1: A hundred percent. That's exactly what he's thinking. In the Bianca's living room, Tex pulled a pillowcase obtained in the couple's bedroom over Lino's head, knotting a lamp cord around his head and mouth to gag him. The same was done to Rosemary in the bedroom while Pat rummaged in the kitchen for knives. Quote, Tex thought that although Leslie seemed reluctant to participate in what was going to happen next, Pat was not only willing but eager. Tex was wrong. Pat was afraid, not for the LaBiancas, she remembers, but for herself. She had no desire to murder anyone else, but she believed that if she hesitated, Tex would tell Charlie, and then Charlie would beat her, maybe even kill her, to demonstrate to the rest of the family the consequences of not following orders. As Pat selected a knife and returned to the bedroom where Rosemary LaBianca was bound and gagged, with her free hand, she gripped the doorframe for a moment and, she said decades later, silently begged God to make it stop. That didn't happen, and I never believed in God since, she said. He doesn't answer prayers.
0: Um, I, do do you buy that?
1: Um, hmm. She might have, but I mean, she she was perfectly capable of making it stop herself. She's just deflecting blame here.
0: Yeah, it's even once you're in the kitchen, Tex doesn't have Isaiah on you anymore. You could
1: leave. Yeah. Lena realized what was about to happen. He struggled and tried to scream. Pat and Leslie went to the bedroom with Rosemary, and Tex stabbed Lino in the throat with the bayonet. And then he just kept stabbing and stabbing. For a few moments, Lino was able to gurgle through the blood, I'm dead, I'm dead, until he seemed like he really was. Rosemary had heard the horrific assault on her husband from the bedroom. The gag wasn't very good. She had heard Lino's terrifying last words. She screamed, What are you doing to my husband? And she tried to get free. Pat began to try and stab her. She connected at points. Um, but Leslie retreated into the hall.
0: Well, Pat did something, I yeah. guess, technically.
1: Yeah. Tex came in with the bayonet to finish the job, which he did. Uh, he stabbed Rosemary. Pat went into the living room, then came back for Tex, saying that Lena was actually still alive. The group left. Oh, well, no, he, he's saying he's dead. The group left the now-deceased Rosemary, and Tex stabbed Lino more until it was certain he was dead. Either Tex or Pat, uh, it varies, carved war, W-A-R, into Lino's exposed stomach. Huh. What is it good for? Carving into someone's stomach, apparently. Pat jammed a long-tined carving fork into his abdomen as well, and then thrust a small kitchen knife into his throat underneath the pillowcase and left the items sticking out of his body. Noticing Leslie still hadn't done anything, and again, accounts vary as to how much she really did do, uh, and knowing that Charlie had said everyone had to get their hands dirty, Tex ordered Leslie to muti- mutilate Rosemary LaBianca's corpse. Rosemary had died lying on her stomach, and Leslie pulled up her dress, stabbing her legs and backside and leaving her exposed, which is just... Um, Just another indignity to this woman who was obviously very proper. Before leaving, the group raided the La Bianca's fridge for snacks, eating watermelon and drinking chocolate milk like a bunch of school kids. And they even left the watermelon rinds in the sink. Uh,
0: Two great tastes that I would imagine don't taste great together.
1: Absolutely not. The group stole a bag of change Lino had in the home because he collected rare coins and before leaving, remember to leave witchy messages on the wall, rise and death to pigs written in blood on the walls, as well as heelter skelter. H-E-A-L.
0: Great job, guys. And again, you're trying to frame the Black Panther. So, of course, quote Beatles lyrics. Yes,
1: they love the Beatles. Um, Heelter Skelter was written in blood on the refrigerator door. Pat had written this meaning to write Helter Skelter, but she was very bad at spelling. So, she uh, she messed it up on the big night, I would say.
0: <laughs> she blew it in a big spot, didn't she, care?
1: Yeah. Then they left, having thoroughly destroyed the lives of those unlucky enough to be home that night at thirty-three eleven Waverly Drive. Meanwhile, Charlie was now in the driver's seat, and the car was heading toward Silmar, an ethnically diverse neighborhood not too far from where Lotsa Papa had lived, which um, Charlie still thinks uh, is is a guy, a drug dealer who uh, he murdered. Lotsa Papa actually survived. Charlie didn't know this. Linda was told to take the money out of Rosemary's wallet and that they would dump it somewhere in the neighborhood to be found by a black person because a lot of black people lived there. Um, Charlie uh, said that, of course, this person would use all the credit cards instead of turning it into the police. And then that person would be suspected as the LaBianca's murderer.
0: It's airtight.
1: Hmm. Linda dumped the wallet in a gas station bathroom. When she came back, Charlie had brought the whole gang milkshakes, and they drove to the beach. Oh, fun! They
0: Did you t- go to In and Out Burger too.
1: No, this was Denny's though. Oh. They took a walk. Charlie holding hands with Linda, and she told him that she was pregnant. He was thrilled.
0: Well, this is a very incongruous scene. Yeah. All of a sudden, they're they're walking hand in Date hand night to a on carnival? the boardwalk.
1: Yeah. After that, the group headed to Venice, and Charlie asked if Linda knew anyone who lived nearby. Linda remembered that she had met a Middle Eastern man while hitchhiking who had told her that he was an actor, and this would later turn out to be the Lebanese actor Saladin Nadir. Charlie wanted to go to the guy's house, and when they got there, he handed Linda a knife and instructed her to knock on the actor's door and kill him. She replied, I'm not you, Charlie. So he gave Clem his gun. The new plan would have Linda knocking on the door, stabbing the man when he answered, and then Clem would emerge to shoot him and confirm he was dead. Charlie left them there to do the deed, saying they could hitchhike home once it was done, but Linda couldn't do it. She lied and told Susan and Clem that this wasn't the right place. She actually couldn't remember where the actor lived after all. They returned to the beach to bury the gun and hitchhiked back to spawn. Well, after Susan... um. Shit in Saladin's stairwell on the way out.
0: Well, uh, sure, we're here. We you might as well do something. Mm. Um, I thought you were going to say after they got more milkshakes on the way home.
1: <laughs> Sunday morning, William Gerritsen was released from police custody after passing a polygraph test. They had no evidence to keep him.
0: Uh, there's no scientific backing for that, but but continue.
1: Yeah. By this point, Garrettson had also realized that the fifth victim was Steve Parent, who had only been there to visit him and was consumed by guilt, along with the fact that he, more likely than not, had heard some bad shit going down the night of the murders and hid in the guest cottage instead of going out to confront the killers. Again, definitely hide in that situation, <laughs> but, um, you know, you could see why someone would feel guilty.
0: Yeah, sure. Well, and and
1: shameful. Yes. Shame, for sure. The LAPD was starting to develop a theory that a drug deal had been involved with the murders, assuming that Wojciech Frakowski, who was already on police radar for his involvement in the drug scene, had just made the wrong guy angry. That, this was retaliation. That makes sense. In fact, they were so convinced of this theory that when detectives working on the Gary Hinman case called to discuss the possibility of a connection due to the bloody writing on the walls at both crime scenes, the sergeant who answered the phone had pretty much been like, yeah, I doubt they're connected because this one's definitely drugs. But like, hope you find your guy. So there was a connection made like in the first hours. Of we, this case. we won't even
0: consider it, though. Yeah. Even though one of the victims here, at least one of the victims here was shot. It's not even like the M.O.s are totally different.
1: On Sunday night, Frank Struthers arrived home to Waverly Drive. Immediately, he noticed the speedboat was still tethered to the car in the driveway, which was strange because Lino had never left the speedboat out overnight. Also strange was the fact that all of the window shades of the house were pulled down, which the LaBiancas also never did. Frank knocked on the back door, not realizing it was unlocked. He received no response. Then he walked to a nearby payphone and called his older sister, Suzanne, uh, clearly realizing that something was very off here. And Suzanne arrived to the house soon after with her boyfriend, Joe Dorgan. The trio went into the house through the back door. Suzanne stayed in the kitchen and Joe and Frank moved into the dining room and then the living room where they found Lino dead and horribly mutilated on the floor. The boys immediately turned to Suzanne in the kitchen and told her, everything's fine, but we have to leave the house right away. But Suzanne knew that something was wrong. She had already seen strange words written in what looked like red paint on the fridge door. The police were called at the... And
0: all the watermelons gone.
1: (laughs) Well, even more distressing. The police were called at the neighbor's house, and the LaBianca murder investigation began at around 10.30 p.m. on Sunday, August 9th. When the media got a hold of the story, the LaBianca murder was immediately connected to the Tate murders of the prior day. Charlie tried to convince the family that Helter Skelter had officially started. Just look at all the press, he said. He was offering this as his evidence. Um, but there was no race war. Right,
0: there's no racial angle to it. Right now, it's just white people killing white people.
1: Yes, likely, yeah. And soon the police and then the world would realize that the real perpetrator here was a family of ragtag hippies and their trial would become a sensation. We'll discuss how the Manson family was finally caught and what happened to them when they were charged after the break.
0: Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait to see Charlie eat just all of these bad plans, bad deeds and bad thoughts
1: it is satisfying
0: <sighs> Zip zap, <hey. laughs>
1: my name is cindy burnett and each week i interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast thoughts from a page we talk spoiler free about their books so you can listen whether you have read the book or not and then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else the importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.
0: Welcome back. When last we left you, the uh, La Bianca murders had put a bloody exclamation point on the Manson killing spree, and the investigation into those murders would eventually, uh, we spoiled, lead to the capture of the perpetrators and uh, put Charles Manson behind bars for the rest of his life. Carrie, uh, I have to imagine this is an interesting and entertaining trial.
1: It is. But first, we have to talk about how they got to the trial. Despite telling the press on August 12th that they had ruled out any connections between the Tate and LaBianca homicides, the LAPD was still investigating all angles. On August 15th, the other major event of the late era 60s began, Woodstock. So it was just a week later. These so that's two a... co- completely opposite events. Well,
0: th- that's also a bunch of people in the middle of nowhere rolling around in their own shit and doing a lot of drugs. Right.
1: But the Manson murders are kind of emblematic of the worst of the 60s, and Woodstock is kind of seen as like the apex of like the fun, free love, hippie time. It's weird that Woodstock actually happened after. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the next day, August 16th, the L.A. Sheriff's Office coincidentally raided Spawn Ranch due to an anonymous tip, arresting Charlie and 25 others there connected to the Manson family, not for any murders, but as suspects in a major auto theft ring, uh, one that had been stealing Volkswagen Beetles to convert into dune buggies.
0: Were they, inv- I remember talk of dune buggies.
1: Yes, they, they, this, I mean, they had done this, yeah. But due to a flub with the search warrant, the whole group had to be released a few days later. However, the whole thing played into Charlie's warnings to the family that the law would soon be after them as the race war got started.
0: This is more classic cult stuff. This is Waco, and mm-hmm. as soon as the uh, outside authorities step up their pressure, it just like lets C? you yeah seize your control harder over the group.
1: Mm-hmm. So he decided it was high time to take the group and finally decamp to Death Valley, as he had been planning it was time to find the bottomless pit and hunker down, awaiting a new world to emerge from blood and fire. Before the family left, Linda Casabian, who um, you'll remember was present at both of the murders and didn't take part in any of the killing or anything and was very upset by the whole thing. The car hider. Yes. She fled Spawn to go back to her ex-husband, Bob, and she told him everything. She told him about the murders. She told him every, everything she knew. Linda had left her daughter, Tanya, behind with the family in her escape. Gambling that despite how the group acted towards their victims and how angry they would be at her for leaving, they always cared for the children of the family and so Tanya wouldn't be harmed.
0: And how did that gamble pay off, Carrie?
1: It worked, but wasn't smart. No. Though, you know, it's kind of like a kidnap victim sort of thing. Like, you just take the opportunity you can get, but... I can't put myself in that place. I don't know what I would do. Um, I can't imagine leaving my daughter with Charles Manson, but... oh,
0: Oh, even if they have the best intentions, these people are the worst babysitters, right? Yes.
1: Bob wanted to return immediately to the ranch to get their daughter, Tanya. Linda feared Charlie would kill them if they even tried. This fight between the two went on for several days. Eventually... Through a whole series of stuff, she was able to talk to Patricia Krenwinkel on the phone and Squeaky Fromm, too. And she learned that Tanya had been surrendered by the family to foster care. Despite a lot of red tape, Linda was eventually able to get her daughter back. Um, I also don't think she ended up ever having the baby she was pregnant with. Why not just call... She was... I think this is more cult stuff. Like why didn't she just tell the police? Yeah. Yeah, she um she never she didn't tell authorities anything about the murders even when she was trying to get Tanya back. She just feared that they would come after her if I, she did.
0: I could see being afraid that the whole like gang or the whole cult might set upon you and kill you if you went on the property, but Charlie's not a superhero, you know what I mean?
1: Around August 25th or 26th, Shorty Shea, the Spawn Ranch hand who was a vocal enemy of everything the family stood for, mysteriously disappeared. This happened after Shorty got into a car with Charlie, Clem, and Bruce Davis. Around 9 p.m., family member Barbara Hoyt had been awakened on Spawn Ranch by the sound of a scream, then another, and another. Shorty Shea was never seen again. Bruce Davis allegedly told some family members at the time that he, Clem, and Charlie had armed themselves with more bayonets, took Shorty far enough out on the ranch that there would be no witnesses, and carved him up like a Christmas turkey. Where are they getting
0: these bayonets from?
1: Army surplus. Uh Uh-huh. And they did all of this, apparently, because it was suspected that Shorty had been the one to tip off the police about the stolen cars and dune buggies and got them all arrested. After this, the family began their piecemeal move to Death Valley. It was in Death Valley that they would be apprehended once more, again for stolen cars, in October. It was for the best for them, Uh, though the commune had functioned well enough at Spawn. In Death Valley, food was scarce and drugs were even scarcer. Uh So it was a very tense situation. and They still hadn't found the bottomless pit.
0: Surely drugs are pretty scarce in jail. You don't, getting rounded up isn't ideal.
1: Yeah. Charlie even tried begging Greg Jacobson for money. Greg Jacobson, the friend of Terry Melcher and Dennis Wilson, um, but uh, when he saw Greg Jacobson, Greg Jacobson, uh, Greg Jacobson, uh, took one more one look at him and was like, "You're not made for the city anymore. Like you're you're gone. You're done." What is he,
0: Marcellus Wallace? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You've lost your L.A. privileges. <laughs>
1: Charlie returned to Death Valley demanding his followers work harder than ever to find the bottomless pit. After the family members burned an earth mover owned by the Death Valley National Monument, a joint force of National Park Service rangers and police raided the Myers and Barker ranches where they had set up camp. Wait, why did they do that? Cuz they're hippies. I don't I don't really know why they did that. Just for fun? Maybe. There's probably some convoluted strategy behind it, but it's not they're stupid. they 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 set this thing on fire. It was government property.
0: But do you think it was like part of the helter-skelter plan, or is it just pranks?
1: Uh, probably part of some plan, you know. during the raid, stolen dune buggies and other vehicles were found, and another two dozen people were arrested, including Charlie. He was found last, crammed. Entire body into a cupboard under a bathroom sink. <laughs>
0: He's a little guy.
1: And uh it was a good hiding spot, but his long hair had gotten stuck in the door when he like closed it behind him and gave no. him away.
0: That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard.
1: Yeah. And the arresting officers had no idea they had just apprehended those responsible for the Tate La Bianca murders.
0: You've got Jack Flash and the Apple <laughs> Gang crew here, buddy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> sure. <laughs> Following leads provided by Kitty Lutzinger, Bobby Beausoleil's girlfriend, who had also been arrested in the raid, the police started to put the pieces together on the murder investigation. Kitty directed them to ask the Straight Satans about the crime. That's the uh, biker gang that they were dealing with.
0: Oh, sure. I remember the Straight Satans. (laughs) We just get into all kinds of things. You know, all straight stuff.
1: Well, your favorite, um, the Straight Satan Manson Family Hybrid member, Danny DiCarlo...
0: Yeah, that's... Oh, oh, Uh, it's me. It's Danny. Hey, you guys got any more of those good drugs? Those silly, silly drugs?
1: He was apprehended by police and suggested that the family was connected to the horrific murder um, in August. While this part of the investigation was taking place, simultaneously, Susan Atkins, confined to a woman's prison, began blabbing to her bunkmates about her involvement in Sharon Tate's murder. Uh, So Charlie was right. I mean... It was them getting arrested like they talked. Uh, Susan talked immediately.
0: And not even two police, just just gossiping like gals to yeah. her to her. Bunkmates.
1: She's trying to one up them. So the the other two women, Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard, they were sex workers. They had been involved in like fraud and embezzlement stuff. So they're all swapping stories. And Susan wanted to like tell the best story, probably. So once she was comfortable enough, Susan told Virginia and Ronnie all about Helter Skelter and Charlie Manson and eventually that murder case in Benedict Canyon.
0: Oh, you guys uh, so fraud, huh? Well, I'm an assassin for a wizard.
1: (laughs) When Virginia, shocked, asked, wait a minute, do you mean the Sharon Tate murder? Susan responded with, you know who did it? You're looking at her.
0: Wow. Wow. Very cute, and this is she did the same thing in her um, real world audition tape, right?
1: <laughs> she bragged that she herself had finished Sharon off, saying that despite Sharon begging for her life and that of her baby, I got sick of listening to her, so I stabbed her. She said the taste of Sharon's blood was warm and sticky and nice, and that stabbing her was. Better than a climax.
0: I I do want to say that warm, sticky, and nice are all not tastes, technically. Mm -hmm.
1: To Ronnie, Susan listed other celebrities that Charlie supposedly had also wanted to kill next, uh, like Elizabeth Taylor and Frank Sinatra. The women didn't know what to do. After all, they were criminals too. They didn't trust the police. Can
0: you imagine Charlie going after Frank Sinatra? I don't think he wanted that smoke.
1: No, I don't think he did either. I think Susan's probably making some of this up or maybe they were just sort of spitballing names around at some point.
0: Yeah, Frank Sinatra, yeah.
1: <laughs> um. So yeah, so Virginia and Ronnie are like, what do we do? We don't feel like we can go to the police. You don't snitch, right? But clearly this bitch is crazy. She does seem to know a lot about these murders. And according to her, there's also more to come if they aren't stopped now. And these women weren't straight up murderers. I think one of them had like stabbed her ex, but haven't we all stabbed her He ex? had it coming. <laughs> he had
0: it coming.
1: In November, after Virginia was transferred to another jail, Ronnie decided that she had to snitch on Susan. If more people died, their blood would be on Ronnie's hands and she couldn't deal with that. Ronnie desperately tried to get someone, anyone, to listen to her story. It's super frustrating, all of the hoops she tried to jump through just to talk to someone about this. But after weeks of legal bullshit, she was able to finally get in touch with the Hollywood police. It was around the time that... It was around the time that Ronnie was finally able to tell her story, that Danny DeCarlo was telling his.
0: So all the pieces coming together this mm-hmm.
1: fall. And the Tate-LaBianca murders were officially connected. District Attorney Vincent Bugliosi, who would eventually write the book Helter Skelter, was told the next day that he would be prosecuting the, t- the cases in tandem. On December 1st, 1969, the arrests were announced publicly, with warrants being issued for Tex Watson, Pat Krenwinkel, and Linda Casabian. Susan and Charlie were already in custody. The first two were apprehended quickly, and Linda voluntarily surrendered to authorities in New Hampshire on December 2nd. Soon after, all of the suspects were connected by physical evidence to the scenes of the murders, like the uh, fingerprints. And the gun used at Cielo Drive had also been found, as well as the bloody clothing discarded by the Tate killers after the crime. On June fifteenth, 1970, the trial of the People versus Charles Manson et al. began, the et al. being Patricia and Susan, Linda, was granted immunity for her testimony.
0: And Tex was getting his own trial?
1: Yes. Uh, Tex was tried separately, and Leslie Van Houten was tried on lesser counts as she had only participated in one murder, and it was unclear if she had done more during the killings than the mutilation of Rosemary's corpse. She had different charges. Isn't the movie
0: Female Trouble specifically dedicated to Tex Watson?
1: Yes. John Waters is actually very close friends with Leslie Van Houten. Uh, he talks in his memoir about the fact that he wishes Leslie had found a group of friends like his uh, rather than the Manson family and that she would have been much more suited to just like making weird movies with Divine instead of being sucked into this cult.
0: Yeah, just watching a drag queen eat a uh, piece of dog shit.
1: Yeah, and he basically says that um, you know Leslie and her friends, him among them, understand that he says something like, because of, I, we know because of Leslie, the LaBianca children don't have a mother. Um, but when is punishment enough? Leslie has uh, served more time in prison than any convicted Nazi war criminal. Um,
0: well, that's because they killed most of them.
1: Right. So, anyway, uh, it was very much like a um, West Memphis 3 situation, except we knew she was involved in some way. Anyway. We'll get into what happens with Leslie down the road later. But Susan had originally been offered a deal that uh, in exchange for not seeking the death penalty, she would give testimony. So it was kind of like, we'll we'll only seek a life sentence if you testify. However, Susan reneged on the deal. Not surprising. She's a flake. And the prosecution withdrew their agreement and said, well, we're going to pursue the death penalty. So good luck with that. Charlie Manson was originally reluctantly given permission by Judge William Keene to act as his own attorney.
0: Oh my God, it's that's a, priceless.
1: It's a classic narcissist move, also employed by the likes of Ten, Ted Bundy a decade later. But I think Ted probably had more law experience. Well, and Ted, well, he A, was a law student at least. Yeah, I mean, Charlie was in prison a lot, but I don't think he really... <laughs> that doesn't I don't think he legal really, experience. <laughs> yeah, sponged a lot of that that law stuff
0: um but ted bundy if i remember correctly he and we'll do that story uh at some point yeah on talk pod, about
1: six-part podcasts
0: um i think he got pretty good reviews for his performance in court it's just he was so obviously guilty that
1: the judge told ted bundy i wish we had met in court in a different fashion with you as a lawyer i would have liked to see you practice <laughs> it's like jeez <laughs> it's really it's like, i'm not mad i'm disappointed yeah really mm. However, due to multiple instances of misconduct, including violating a gag order and submitting outlandish and nonsensical pretrial motions, permission to represent himself was withdrawn. Charlie filed an affidavit of prejudice against Judge Keene who was replaced on the trial by Judge Charles Older. And uh, Older would be the judge for the rest of the trial. On July 24th, the first day of testimony, Charlie showed up to court with a fresh X carved into his forehead. He gave out a statement saying that he was considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself. And so he had X'd himself from the establishment's world.
0: Oh, Jesus Christ.
1: Over the weekend, Susan, Pat, and Leslie also followed suit by carving X's into their own foreheads, as did most of the other active family members, many of whom would post up outside of the courthouse for the duration of the trial.
0: Could be worse. Some of those Heaven's Gate people cut their balls off.
1: Yeah. And Charlie later turned that X into a swastika. So, would rather have an X. Yeah, could be worse. (laughs) As we've mentioned here and there, the prosecution's case really rested on the Helter Skelter theory, and uh, that being Charlie's main motive in kicking off the crimes. The defendants did testify when they were able that the writing in blood on the walls was simply to copy the Hinman murder scene, not to trigger an apocalyptic race war. But it seems to me that this was all a little column A, a little column B. There's been debate over whether Charlie actually believed in the helter skelter race war, and Bugliosi presents it like he really did ish. Um,
0: Why is this even a, a material point in the trial? Like it, it seems clear that Charlie directed these people to kill these people, whether it was to yes. spark a race war or I to mean, cover I guess they they
1: had to establish that he. Well, they're they're trying to get the death penalty for him. They're trying to get murder for him, even though he didn't fit murder any of the people that he's being charged for, like with his own hands. So they're doing it through this helter skelter sort of brainwashing thing of like he had just as much influence on these events as the people who actually had the knives in their hands. Rip. So I think that's like the main...
0: But I think that's true point. even though I also think the Helter Skelter... I I think the fact that the Helter Skelter stuff is a lie to his followers it makes it even more clear that that Charlie was was just manipulating them Yeah. for fun almost.
1: Yeah, personally I don't think he believed in Helter Skelter. I think the concept sort of came about and was sort of a means to an end for him. The end being just total control over his cult. However, I do think Charlie's followers believed pretty much anything he said or at least wanted to, and that included the helter-skelter race war theory. So yes, they did commit the murders to try and throw the police's scent off of Bobby Bosley, but also they wanted to kick off Helter Skelter too. So it's a little less black and white than presented by either Charlie and the family or by prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi in Helter Skelter, the book about the trial. But um, I mean, Charlie's, Charlie's still the guy at the end of the day. The defendants and the external members of the family were certainly a distraction during the trial. Aside from their loitering outside of the courthouse, some family members threatened witnesses, like former family member Paul Watkins and spawn ranch worker Juan Flynn. They were threatened with um, retaliation if they testified. Mm -hmm. Watkins was badly burned in a suspicious fire in his van. So they might have done something. Well,
0: and he survived, so it does seem like the family's handy.
1: Yes, well... Barbara Hoyt, a family member, we mentioned that she had heard what was likely Shorty Shea being murdered. She agreed to accompany Ruthann Morehouse to Hawaii, where Ruthann gave her a hamburger spiked with several doses of LSD. The family had discovered that Barbara had been pretty much forced into becoming a reluctant witness for the prosecution, and she would be giving testimony in the trial shortly. So the family hoped that she would either die or go crazy from the LSD dosing. How, how and not sh- be able to testify?
0: How shortly was the testimony? Was it that day or the following day? It was like
1: soon after.
0: Well, but if it wasn't that day, then she's probably going to be okay.
1: Well, she almost died because she just went out of her mind. Um, but after that, uh, she was no longer reluctant to take the stand against the cult. She survived and she testified with fervor. Yeah. On August 4th, there was a large brouhaha during the trial after President Richard Nixon called Charlie guilty in an interview. That man is guilty. (laughs) Despite the court's precautions, Charlie was able to hold up a copy of the Los Angeles Times whose headline screamed, Manson guilty, Nixon declares. Obviously, they didn't want the jury, who was in voir dire, to see this sort of thing.
0: Why did Charlie want the jury to see it?
1: Well, this was Charlie's attempt to get the da- the case dismissed due to prejudice. You don't get to
0: do that if you were the one who showed the stuff.
1: Yeah, but to be fair, it looks pretty bad. The president of the country had basically called Charlie guilty before he was even sentenced. So you could argue that what jury is going to go against the president? No, we have plenty of that, right? But you could argue that. The jurors, however, contended that they had not been influenced by the headline. The next day the female defendants stood up and said in unison that in light of the president's remark there was no point in going on with the trial but it went on
0: wait what oh the female defendants yes
1: on october they were like a greek chorus for charlie throughout president's remarks they were like a greek chorus for charlie throughout the trial they would just sort of pipe up with whatever you know support he needed
0: whatever he had asked them to say before the
1: on October 5th, Charlie was denied permission by the court to question a prosecution witness that defense attorneys had declined to cross examine. Charlie absolutely lost it, jumping over the defense table in an attempt to physically attack Judge Older. He was tackled by bailiffs and removed from the courtroom, followed soon after by the female defendants who had stood up and begun to chant in Latin. In Latin? Or at least it sounded speak like Latin. <laughs> Uh, allegedly after this incident uh,
0: Leslie didn't we establish Leslie can barely spell in English oh that's
1: Pat but oh. yes <laughs> allegedly after this incident judge older began wearing a revolver under his robes on November 16th the prosecution rested its case Three days later, after standard dismissal motions had been argued, the defense shocked the court by also stating it was resting its case without even calling a single witness.
0: (laughs) Their lawyers just throw their hands up like, well, there's no point.
1: Susan, Pat, and Leslie immediately left to protest, saying they wanted to testify. Apparently, Charlie had instructed them to testify to committing the murders on their own, with him having nothing to do with the crimes. And they wanted to be able to tell this to the jury. The defense was brought into the judge's chambers for a private discussion. During this, the defense lawyers explained that they were trying to prevent this self-damning testimony, which was an obvious bald-faced gambit to exonerate Charlie at their defendant's expenses. Ronald Hughes, Leslie's defense attorney, told the judge that he would not push a client out the window and objected to the idea of the female defendants testifying and incriminating themselves. This strategy contradicted Charlie's grand plan to allow the fellow family members to take the fall for him. On November 20th, Charlie testified himself.
0: (laughs) Yeah, they all did it. I had nothing to do with it. It doesn't sound as good when Charlie says it.
1: Speaking for more than an hour, Manson said, among other things, that the music is telling the youth to rise up against the establishment. He also said, why blame it on me? I didn't write the music, which he did. Um, And also... To be honest with you, I don't ever recall saying, get a knife and a change of clothes and go do what text says. Judge Older ordered a 10-day recess so both sides could now plan their closing arguments. On November 27th, Leslie Van Houten's defense attorney, Ronald Hughes, disappeared. Wait, what? <laughs> you nodded and then you did a double take.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, sh- shocking information. Mm-hmm. Did the family kill him?
1: Hughes was one of the first lawyers to meet with Charlie in December 1969, initially signing on to be his attorney, but instead ended up as Leslie's, probably during the whole, I want to be my own attorney thing. Hughes was a bit of a character. He had failed the bar exam three times before eventually passing. For me, six times was the charm. And he had never tried a case before Leslie's. Oh my God, it's my cousin (laughs) Vinny. Yes. Uh, He had apparently begun the trial as an ally to the defense in Charlie's eyes. He was known as the hippie lawyer. However, after the latest scene, he had become Charlie's enemy. And Charlie said something to him at the end of that day, like, I don't want to see you in this courtroom again. And he didn't.
0: Charlie's in jail. Like, he doesn't have any
1: power at this point. On November 27th, during the court recess, Hughes decided to take a camping trip in a remote area near Sespe Hot Springs in Ventura County, California. According to James Forsher and Lauren Elder, two friends who had accompanied Hughes on the trip, heavy rains had struck the area, triggering flash floods and miring their Volkswagen in mud. Forsher and Elder hitchhiked their way out, but Hughes decided to stay in the area until November 29th. As the rains continued, the wilderness area was evacuated. However, Hughes was never seen leaving. Hughes was last seen by three unrelated campers on the morning of November 28th. The campers later told investigators that Hughes was alone at the time and had briefly stopped to talk with them. He appeared to be unharmed and was in an area that was away from floodwaters. When court reconvened on November 30th, Hughes didn't show. Due to continued rainstorms, the sheriff's department had to wait two days before a search was launched. On December 2nd, Judge Older ordered the trial to proceed and appointed a new attorney, Maxwell Keith, for Leslie Van Houten. The female defendants angrily demanded the firing of all of their lawyers instead.
0: Wait, are we going to not return to Hughes again? We will. Okay. Because it sounds like Charlie said, I don't want to see you anymore, and then he just died. Which now I do, I kind of think he might be a wizard. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Um, the, the women also asked to reopen their defense. This request was denied. By week's end, Hughes had been missing for two weeks. When court reconvened, Manson and the women created a disturbance suggesting that Judge Older did away with Ronald Hughes, which resulted in their being removed again from the courtroom. More than a dozen searches were conducted for Hughes in the months following, and on March 29th, 1971, my birthday, lucky me, Hughes's severely decomposed body was discovered by two fishermen in Ventura County wedged between two boulders in a gorge. Because of the decomposition, his cause of death was ruled as undetermined. Rumors persist to this day that Charlie had actually ordered Hughes's murder, which would have been carried out by one or more members of the family still on the outside.
0: But that's not what the accounts sound like. The accounts sound like he his car got stuck and he was just like... All right, I'm going to stay here. And then he just slowly drowned over the the course of a few days.
1: In Helter Skelter, Bugliosi wrote that Sandra Good, a close friend of family member Squeaky Fromm, claimed that Manson family members had killed 35 to 40 people and that Hughes was the first of the retaliation murders. An anonymous tip made to Bugliosi in 1976 said the same. And it seems like Bugliosi himself believes that they might have had a hand in Hughes's death.
0: But what do you make of the car gets stuck and his friends leave and he goes, no, I'm going to stay here. And then campers see him go, what, a couple days later, seemingly unharmed and just wandering around? What's going on? I don't know.
1: On January 25th, 1971, the jury returned guilty verdicts against Charlie Manson, Pat Kronwinkle, Susan Atkins, and Leslie Van Houten on each of the 27 separate counts against them. Quote, not far into the trial's penalty phase, the jurors saw at last the defense that Manson, in the prosecution's view, had planned to present. Atkins, Krenwinkel, and Van Houten testified the murders had been conceived as copycat versions of the Hinman murder, for which Atkins now took credit. The killings, they said, were intended to draw suspicion away from Bobby Bosley by resembling the crime for which he had been jailed. This plan had supposedly been the work of and carried out under the guidance of not Manson, but someone allegedly in love with Beausoleil, Linda Kasavian.
0: Yeah, she seems like the ideas girl.
1: (laughs) Among the narrative's weak points was the inability of Atkins to explain why, as she was maintaining, she had written political piggy at the Hinman house in the first place, if not because of Charlie or Helter Skelter.
0: Just say the drugs, surely.
1: And they were clearly just trying to throw it on Linda because she was testifying against them. Midway through the penalty phase, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork shape, telling the press, "I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head." <laughs> I love the. Not class. as not as uh, quippy as Tex Watson, I would have to say. <laughs> no. Susan, Pat, and Leslie refrained. If those
0: were the last words you ever heard, though. That is haunting.
1: Yeah. Susan, Pat, and Leslie refrained from shaving their heads until the jurors retired to weigh the state's request for the death penalty. The effort to exonerate Manson via the copycat scenario failed. On March 29, 1971, again my birthday, and again the day that Hughes' body was finally discovered, the jury returned verdicts of death against all of the four defendants on all counts. On April 19, 1971, Judge Older sentenced the four to death officially. Tex Watson, tried separately after extradition to California from Texas, was found guilty in his trial on seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy, and also sentenced to the death penalty. In February of 1972, the death sentences of all five were automatically reduced to life in prison after the California Supreme Court abolished the death penalty in the state. Mm-hmm. So they only had the death; they were only on death row for like a year. Should have been longer. <laughs> um, in 1976, Leslie Van Houten was granted a new trial on the grounds that she was denied proper legal res- representation after Hughes disappeared before the closing arguments. Her 1977 retrial ended in a hung jury. She was released from jail after posting a $200,000 bond and retried again in 1978. In her third trial, Van Houten was convicted of the first-degree murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca and conspiracy in connection with the Tate murders, and she was sentenced to seven years to life in prison. She remained incarcerated for 53 years until being paroled, uh... Two months ago. Wow. Uh so that just happened. Wow. Uh, and she's currently living it up in California. Oh, I don't know if she's living it up, but she's living in California.
0: That is uh that's incredible just. July twenty
1: twenty-three, the first Manson family member to ever uh be paroled in this case.
0: Yeah, I would imagine uh she probably doesn't pose much of a threat at this point. Yeah. Um it's probably probably fine to have her out out, out amongst us.
1: Susan Atkins died in 2009 as California's longest-serving female inmate. Bobby Beausoleil remains in prison for the murder of Gary Hinman. He was recommended for parole by the parole board in 2019, and the recommendation was denied by the governor of California. Tex Watson is still incarcerated and has been denied parole 18 times, including a five-year denial of parole at a hearing in October 2021.
0: You know, Tex took to it a little too... A little too fish to water for Tex, for my liking. I I think Tex can stay there.
1: And Charlie. Well, we've heard a bunch about the rest of Charles Manson's life. He gave several interviews to the media in the 80s and 90s, corresponded with writers and fans, got set on fire by another inmate in 1984, got nailed for trafficking drugs in prison in 1997.
0: This is a fun kind of end of movie montage. Like we've got, We're gonna make it after all. And all these photos of Charlie getting set on fire.
1: He famously got a marriage license in 2015 to get hitched to a 26-year-old girl named Star who wanted to use his corpse as a tourist attraction after death.
0: Yeah, I remember that.
1: Uh, but they never got married.
0: But was that his first marriage proposal? Because there oh. there's a whole thing of Manson groupies, right? Yeah. Over the years.
1: And and I'll mention it, but we'll do the details on a Patreon episode. There's, there's a lot of, of his life in prison. After 1997, Charlie Manson stopped attending any of his parole hearings. But you can see video of some of the earlier ones where he's really getting down on the insane game.
0: He's spirited.
1: Mm-hmm. On November 19th, 2017, Charles Maddox Manson died of complications related to colon cancer. Rest in piss, Charlie.
0: Well, he was an asshole, so it's only appropriate mm-hmm. uh, that his is what killed him.
1: Mm-hmm. Of course, there are more to these stories, as you mentioned, Sean. There's Susan's conversion to Christianity in prison. All of Charlie's prison hijinks. And, of course, Squeaky Fromm's attempted assassination of President Gerald Ford in 1975.
0: It was the squeaking that gave her away.
1: <laughs> but these are stories for another day, and we'll tie up the loose Manson family ends over on Patreon.
0: Ooh, great time for some more of you to join us over <laughs> there, maybe.
1: Patreon.com slash scary. But otherwise, that's about it. The family fell apart, of course. Those touched by the horrors that the family committed never really recovered. Terry Melcher became a recluse. Dennis Wilson drowned. Roman Polanski, well, we know what happened with him. The Beatles broke up and John Lennon was murdered by another crazed fan. Deborah Tate, Sharon's younger sister, has regularly testified over the years against the remaining Manson family members involved in the homicides being released on parole. She called Leslie Van Houten's parole this year catastrophic for the victims' families. The murders themselves have been portrayed again and again over the years in films as recent as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, television shows as recent as American Horror Story, and of course, books and articles and podcasts just like these. Because what we talk about when we talk about the Manson family is not just a crime. Now, it's a part of the fabric of American history.
0: It very much is, and great job with this series, Carrie.
1: <sighs> Charlie's been haunting my dreams.
0: I I can only imagine. Wake up. <laughs> um, the end of uh, the innocence of the hippie movement, or, or at least the, the very tail end of the innocence mm-hmm. of the hippie movement. Uh, do you think that, I don't know, the arrayed forces of government and capitalism who were threatened by the countercultural elements of the 60s uh, found a nice uh, excuse here to, to really bring the hammer down on the whole thing? I mean, in media portrayals, I and think they in,
1: used it that way, but they didn't. I mean, the family did did it all themselves. Like they they did just enough by themselves. They didn't need any help. So, you know, the fact that they did it, it was certainly ripe for the taking for the government to be like, "Hey, these hippies are fucked up. Look what what they do." Right. But they these hippies were fucked up, and look at what they did. Right, So most
0: hippies were probably more peaceful than normal people, right? Yes,
1: absolutely. But, you know, one bad apple spoils the bunch.
0: And most people who take LSD don't murder celebrities. They usually, you know, rock back and forth in a room looking at a a poster or a Pixar film.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, one bad apple, Sean.
0: And I'm the worm, baby. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) I'm
1: gonna miss him. Charlie? Well, your version of him. He's so spirited.
0: Oh, thank you. Maybe he'll make an appearance uh, every now and then, Mm. when, when you least expect it.
1: Usually he does. I'm in the shadows. Hello, this is Dr.
0: Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever. You get podcasts.
1: In following with this series, no news this week, but we are showcasing another special message left for us by a listener at our Google voice number. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail and have your message featured on the show, or you can say that it's just for us and you don't want to be featured, that's cool too. Call us at 203-666-5529. And thank you so much for calling, Amy, and even more so for listening. Hi, my name is Amy. I just wanted to call in. I'm a huge fan of the show. I think it is so entertaining. You guys are so much fun to listen to. I'm actually a housekeeper, and I listen to podcasts all the time. I discovered you guys probably about six months ago and listened to all the episodes, just binge all of them. Uh, I'm currently loving the one you're doing on the, uh, Manson, uh, the Manson family. It's very entertaining. I mean, I knew a lot about it, but you're going into detail, which is really cool. But, yeah, I'm just really huge fan, keep up the great work. You guys are awesome, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.
0: Well, all credit for this series goes to my beautiful wife, Amy, but uh, thank you so much for uh, calling. That's so uh, nice, and uh, God knows I use podcasts to get through uh, some of my work day, so I'm glad.
1: Mm. And Godspeed you on your work from two messy, messy messy-ass people. Uh, (laughs) You're doing the real work out there, so I'm just so glad that we could provide some entertainment and some uh, interest during your day. it's always amazing to hear that anyone loves the show, especially when they binge through it. It's just crazy still to hear. So thank you so, so much for listening and taking the time to share that with us. Uh, we can't possibly express how much it means.
0: Yeah. Thanks, Amy. And um, we'd love to hear from from many, from, from many of you. <laughs> Bring it on. Oh. Gently. Gently. Well, yeah, sure, yes, yes, <laughs> be sweet, be sweet and gentle.
1: <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a soft, soft person. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash scary. You can call us and leave a message at our Google voice number, 203-666-5529. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: We certainly will. And special thanks to those of you already joining us on our top couple of Patreon tiers. Uh, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Compy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, Kate Pope, Haley, Wolsey Sean Downs, Ryan, Enrique, Derek, and Ira... That's our Spooky Squad family. We love you all very much. 100%.
1: See you next Thursday.
0: Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe. Music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> I'm the king, baby. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people, to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep our communities wondering what happened.
0: Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the
1: inexplicable. Ohio